house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Those were gifts. Grieving for grown-ups? They're supposed to be helpful. Please, this is helpful. Guys, this is Joe. Hey. <sighs> no matter how difficult it might feel, no matter how desperately we want to kill each other, there's always this warm body on my right, and he never lets me down. You find your home. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that regularly gifts adorable little pigs to our enemies. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I am here, as always, with my reluctant partner in commercial realty, Chris File. Hello, Chris. <laughs> you say that like I'm, um, what's her name? Is it Olivia Racinos? Oh, you is, know are idea. you talking about a, a realty ad at like the movies or whatever? Yes, we it's get the Annie gets the done month again, in New York and City. rent is due again. But stop whining about it. I'm going to show you how to be a homeowner. <laughs> yeah, I feel like everybody gets their own little sort of local real estate person at the movies, which is very fun. It's very fun for everybody involved. Um, Chris, we the, we've been talking around doing Moonlight Mile for a bit it's been always been on like if we have a long list of like here's what stuff we could do for this month moonlight what mile is always sort of like on the long list and And for a while we hadn't done 2002 and it's always like well if we want to do 2002 again we could do moonlight mile so and and i think the reason why it took us to episode 155 to finally do it is in some ways indicative of why it wasn't an oscar success which is it's got all the stuff it's got all the ingredients it's, I mean, we'll get into whether we like it or not. I I really like this movie, but it's not exciting and it's not sexy. You know what I mean? It's not a sexy choice for, for a film. There's not really any sort of like blockbuster sort of discussion topics for it, even though I think there's a lot to talk about in terms of both the, the metatextual story involved involving this movie and also what's happening in it. But it's not too terribly exciting and it's easy to see why this movie was overshadowed by even though this movie was like reviewed okay i think respectfully ebert really loved it ebert gave it four stars and uh and talked it up very well in his review but it's easy to see why this movie got like very very quickly overshadowed by a a, a oscar year that was very heavily at the later in the season anyway so like this movie opening in early october was just like oh hun like the the whirlwind is coming and it's coming in two months so right absolutely because 2002 is incredibly packed in december and like Mm -hmm. not just december but like christmas of december an all december best picture lineup which even with the academy trending towards end of year releases for best picture that's still a lot 
even even with that tendency, an all December best picture year is not it's rare. And um this this year certainly Yeah, the had earliest it. release from this best picture lineup is uh, Lord of the Rings the Two Towers, which is like the week before Christmas. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, Lord of the Rings were like very reliable mid-December releases. So yeah. Was Gangs of New York Christmas? I feel like that. Gangs of Christmas. New York was Christmas, Chicago was Christmas. Pianist might have been even after Christmas. New Year's might have Eve, been, I believe. And The Hours, I think, might have also been just before Christmas. Um, but yeah, Wild Year 2002. Again, a very, very pivotal year. We talk about a lot about being radicalized by The Hours. But in a lot of ways, 2002 really upped me into the Oscar game. This was my year after college where... I didn't really have a whole lot to do at my after-college job but browse the Oscar buzz sites. So that's basically what I did. And and browse Apple movie trailers, which we've talked about before. I've talked about before. Moonlight Mile was definitely on my shortlist roster of Apple movie trailers that I watched over and over and over again, along with... Because that trailer was like fucking emotional gangbusters. Elton John will like murder your heartstrings in that. (laughs) The, The use of Someone Saved My Life Tonight in this trailer, which that song isn't in the movie it's maybe the only sort of uh song of that genre that is not in the movie that is not in this movie it's it's a very needle droppy uh soundtrack and i don't say that with derision because i actually really like most of the song choices the fact that we'll get into that because i really don't it's 50 percent van morrison and um see we're gonna have to have the uncomfortable conversation where i talk about how much van morrison's music really sends me into a wonderful (laughs) headspace so um the fact that this movie ends on sweet thing is just like i i i sort of drifted off into a wonderful little place even though van morrison as a person is a nightmare but like who isn't anyway that trailer yeah was on my shortlist roster of like it was like the hours in chicago and adaptation and the lord of the rings the two towers and 25th hour and moonlight mile what else what are what were the other big like end of 2002 trailers that i watched a ton um basically all of your big sort of like uh, i think i watched the about schmidt trailer a bunch maybe not as much as the other ones but like this was definitely on the short list and um if i told you i watched the chicago trailer at least once a day that was me with the hours. I would like, be lying. <laughs> yeah, the hours and adaptation. The adaptation trailer, which also makes fantastic use of under pressure, which like you would think that the culture had run out of ways to make under pressure iconic and and uh, in in its use in multimedia sort of platforms, but like the use of under pressure in the adaptation trailer is like a plus plus. And for the longest time, that like that was my only. That was the only venue in which I would truly accept that song in a film or a television show. I was just like, no, it's not as good as the adaptation trailer. I'm sorry. Um, it's too bad we can't do adaptation because it was uh, obviously a multiple Oscar nominee and winner. But anyway. Um, incredible movie. Incredible movie. Incredible movie. Um, but yeah, we're here to talk about Moonlight Mile, which... Um, as I said right before we started recording, I'm always very excited to do a podcast when I don't know at all what your feelings on a movie are. Like, we don't really, because this movie has really disappeared from the cultural consciousness, there, I've had no occasion to, like, get a sneak preview on, like, Twitter of you, like, 
you know, talking about yeah, because whether I don't you like, like this movie, put it out there before we're on mic, or or even just know. like in the years that I've known you, you know what I mean? Like we pick up little like right. indications from each other about movies that we like or or performances that we like, and I I have no idea. And this is a movie that I don't really talk about a ton, except as I sort of gave a little hint towards. I kind of really like this movie. This movie is kind of neither betwixt nor between in terms of. I was trying to think of like, we have this conversation a lot about like, this movie doesn't get made today. And it's just like, maybe this movie does actually get made today, but not with this exact tone. Usually a movie like this would be a little quirkier or maybe more overtly funny because it's Sarandon. I sort of thought of the meddler a little bit, but the meddler is kind of a different deal. It's it grief is a, a theme in the meddler, but not quite as central to the movie as this as it is in uh, Moonlight Mile. Um, but it's like, it's a family dramedy. And it's just like, even on television, you don't really get this story told in this way. It's usually either something a lot more melodramatic, like This Is Us, something a lot more hooky. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, you know, maybe like a mystery to it or something like that. This is like, it's a family drama told without a whole lot of uh, narrative... Um, uh, jump starts or jolts, I would say. Mm-hmm. There's just there's not a lot of window dressing. There's a temptation it, to call unless it you boring. Count all of the 1700 needle drops in this movie, 1600 oh, of which are Van Morrison. We're gonna argue. Um, we're, no. Here's here, here's what I my perspective on that is. Yeah. I almost wonder if a movie like this. If you, I think you're right in that. Like, yes, we do still see some movies like this but i think like a moonlight mile might actually get more attention now because it is less common whereas i think part of the reason why this movie deflated so quickly is because like there are a lot there used to be a lot of movies like this um i also think like uh, regardless of we won't have we don't have to get into like how good we think it is or not but like I thought a lot about In the Bedroom oh, while watching this movie, which would have been the year before, Best Picture nominee, obviously much darker than this. Yeah, that's but the thing. dealing with uh, some like plot adjacencies yeah. um, that I think, you know, that movie, even though it's a very, very different movie, uh, handles like some of those like dynamics in a more interesting way well but that even sort of like plays into my point even better which is that like a movie like in the bedroom really cranks up the drama on the situation and cranks like like that is a far more dramatic movie and i i you know not to its detriment at all like we've talked about how brilliant i think in the bedroom is as a movie right um and i think this movie really sits in a little bit of an in-between place in terms of tone and i think part of that is that it's such a personal story for brad silberling it's it's drawn you know in many ways from his own life not not exactly but we'll talk about that too um but this is a movie that really perches it does not care to get very dramatic with the seriousness of its plot in terms of the the murder, the trial. We never see the resolution of the trial very uh, purposefully. Um, and it also, while there are, you know, comedic moments, it's not like a silly movie. It's not a movie that, like, you know... Um, 
sort of chooses to crank up the comedy too much. So or crank up the quirkiness like a movie right, you might see with right. this exact uh, you know, scenario. It even um it even chooses to downplay with the exception of the needle drops and I'll even talk about that when we talk about the genre of needle drops, but like the the setting, the fact that it's set in the early 70s. I had to like go and double check it because like it's not dripping with these kind of uh Vietnam era cliches in terms of mm-hmm. costumes or language or like you don't get the thing where like you see I I love that there's a scene where they're all watching television and it's not like news reports from Vietnam or like you know whatever uh like a a television show that would like tell you exactly what year we're watching there's not a lot of signposts in that way and I think subtlety feels like an active choice in this movie and sort of you could call this movie muted if you wanted to, except for the fact that I think the performances are all really fantastic. And I think that goes a long way towards making this movie work as much as it does, especially when it comes to the two parents and the Sarandon and Dustin Hoffman characters, I think are both really, really well done. And I think any movie that sort of talks about a kind of ad hoc family structure as this movie does is your bread and butter. It is. It, it really, make really you very is. happy. <laughs> like it really, really does. So, um, yeah, I really, really liked it. My guess is you were more mixed. Uh, I mean like not overtly negative. I think there's quite a bit that doesn't work as well as you can imagine it could. I think the tone is, off for most of the movie and then like the last 15 minutes of the movie I hate um I think I'm less enthusiastic about Dustin Hoffman in this movie than you are I think he's fine but I do think he's miscast and I think the chemistry with Sarandon is off and partly because I do disagree I think she's spectacular. She's in the movie. spectacular in this movie. Like, I almost wanted to write down like one of the great Susan Sarandon performances, and I'm like, well, I don't know if I can do that because she's given so many great ones. But like, this is one of the great unheralded Susan Sarandon performances because it's not asking her to do anything big. It's not, uh, it's not Thelma and Louise. It's not, you know, even like uh, the client or anything like that. She's obviously not the lead. There's not a lot of um, fireworks in what she's delivering, but like it's a, it's a very smart performance in knowing what the emotional tenor of yes. the movie is going for yes. and really kind of embodying it better than any other element in the movie. I yeah. think, yeah, um, I think so. Too. And I just I don't think anybody gets that in this movie as well as she does, even the director, um, or like achieves it at least. I. It's, I mean, yes, you're very right in that it's like, it's not this loud fireworks type of performance, but it's like, it. she nails the comic tone when it's trying to be funny. She gets the amount of intensity that it's supposed to have, that it's not ever really going full tilt into this, like, weepy type yeah. of movie. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I'm not as enthusiastic about anything else in this movie as I am about her. 
Yeah, I think she's definitely the highlight for sure. We can agree on that one. So before we get to um, the plot description, I feel like this is a movie that that it helps to sort of set the table with the story behind the story. So Brad Silberling's not really a director we talk about when we talk about like, you know, the great directors. He's sort of a work a day director and he had been leading up to this movie. He had directed two features by this point. He had directed Casper in uh, 95 Fuck and yeah. then and then City of Angels in 98, which as I recall and I can maybe double check it, but like I feel like that was like a decent success in terms it of It was a hit, but it was a hit that pissed people off. Right, right, right. Because but, like, like but it's people a saw that of movie of desire, but right. like American like mainstream audiences showing up to see Nicolas Cage post Oscar Meg right. Ryan in her heyday, right. and it's a love story, and she dies. But like and a lot of people, was about it. but a lot of people saw it, and I feel like I I would love to actually see like the cinema uh, like cinema score uh, for this movie because I want I would love to know whether like audiences disliked it as much as critics disliked it. And maybe they did. But, like, obviously it's a movie that's very well known for its soundtrack. Goo Goo Dolls' Iris was a huge hit off of that soundtrack. Also, Alanis Morissette's Uninvited, which is one of my favorite Alanis songs. Um, I just remember it being, like, kind of a big deal. And I think because it was a big deal, he was able to get this movie, which is his first uh, screen uh, writer-director uh, thing he d- did not write the first two movies that he made and it is a, it's a movie that he had been trying to make for a while because it's this very personal story to him so he was again this kind of a workaday director he was young but he wasn't this like wonderkind or anything like that and he had in the uh late 80s early 90s been dating an actress named Rebecca Schaefer who was most known for a uh, sitcom uh called My Sister Sam which was not a huge sitcom, but like because I grew up, especially I would say, I'm in the age that grew up watching a lot of sitcom reruns. They were sort of plentiful on TV. And like My Sister Sam, I feel like was in the same strata as like a Kate Nally, which I also watched a bunch of reruns of. Um, My Sister Sam was Pam Dauber, uh, who was best known for Mork and Mindy, and Rebecca Schaefer playing, I want to say, half sisters. And Pam Dauber was older and Rebecca Schaefer was quite a bit younger. And that was sort of the tension between them. That was really the only thing she was known for. Uh, and Brad Silberling at the time was dating her. Rebecca Schaefer was in, I believe, 1990, murdered by a fan who was stalking her. She was 22. The, the guy who murdered her was 19 years old. Um, found her home address via a, uh, a private detective and uh, had been writing her letters and stalking her, showed up on her doorstep and shot her. Um, and she had, I believe that day was going to go to an audition for The Godfather 3. I imagine for the role, either if they were still casting Mary Corleone or if, the, what, if it was the role that Bridget Fonda ended up uh, taking. Anyway, her murder was sort of a big deal. Uh, at the time, it helped to enact a bunch of anti-stalking laws in the state of California. Marsha Clark was the prosecuting attorney for the case. So the Holly Hunter character in Moonlight Mile is, at least in part, uh, based on Marsha Clark, which is a very interesting tidbit. And Brad Silberling, uh, being her boyfriend at the time, uh, ended up being very close to her family, ended up going to, as in the movie, sort of live with them for a short time. They kind of uh, had... 
uh, sort of grown to lean on each other. This movie is set a good two decades before uh, the real life events. There are many things that don't, you know, match up exactly one to one. This isn't like a a memoir from Brad Soderling, but obviously many many aspects of uh, uh, and obviously the murder in Moonlight Mile is much more of a ex- uh, incidental thing. The the girl. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's fiance in this movie is killed in a diner shooting. I'm sure you will cover this in the uh, mm. in the plot description. But anyway, pulled from his life, and I think the success of City of Angels allows him to make this movie, uh, and also the fact that he got Susan Sarandon and eventually Dustin Hoffman to sign on to this thing helped uh, get this movie made. And that's sort of the backstory of this movie. Silberling's character uh, career will will you know go into after uh, the plot description, sort of where his career went from there, how he ended up in kind of director jail, at least one assumes, after uh, Land of the Lost. But anyway, that's sort of the the backstory. Were you aware of any of that? This, was this the first time you've seen Moonlight Mile? or was this a, the- No, I've seen it. And I, I knew all that backstory because, uh, as we are prone to do, talking about the EW Fall Movie Preview, I there remember reading that specifically in a fall movie preview for this movie. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, were you aware of the Rebecca Schaefer thing before you had seen Before this Moonlight Mile? No. Yeah. Oh, okay. I think that's one of those things that, like, the the age difference between us sometimes plays a part and sometimes doesn't, and I think that's one of the ones that does, because I definitely remember that being a thing that was sort of a one of the, one of the big sort of, obviously, tragedies. Um, but all the, you know... You don't really hear very much about Rebecca Schaefer these days because, you know, for several reasons. But anyway, um, yeah, so that's the story behind it. It's really sad and it's really um, it informs, I think, a lot of the sort of delicate directions that Moonlight Mile takes, the, 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 the places where this movie declines to be bigger than it is or be mm-hmm. more dramatic than it is. A lot of the times I chalk that up to... Well, you know, a, a writer-director who really doesn't want to over-dramatize a real-life event. Um, and I think that's, you know, for good and sometimes for bad in this movie, in that it does sort of sit in this kind of liminal space where it sometimes might have benefited this movie to be a little bit more dynamic. But, um, I don't know, we'll talk about it. So... Before we get into the plot description, was there anything else you wanted to sort of say about that, about the backstory, about the the kind of meta narrative around this film? Not really. I mean, it is interesting. It's obvious, like you said, it's not a one-for-one as things certainly um, happened, or it's like, you know, it's not the Rebecca Schaefer story. Right. But... I don't know. I'm watching it this time. I was kind of fascinated by, okay, where were the conscious choices to depart from his real life experience? And like, where does it feel like he's going beyond editorializing and uh, like making movie choices? And I think the ones that kind of like leap out to me or speak to me specifically are a lot of the things that I didn't necessarily like about the movie. Yeah. Well, we'll get into that definitely on the other side. All right. Why don't we do, why don't we, why don't I kick it to you for a plot description? Uh, and then we can really get into the meat and potatoes of 
the film. Let me bring up my... We Can Walk the Moonlight Mile. You certainly can. I'm going to bring up my little stopwatch. All right. So we are talking about today, 2002's Moonlight Mile, written and directed by Brad Silberling, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Dustin Hoffman, Susan Sarandon, Ellen Pompeo, Holly Hunter, uh, Dabney Coleman shows up. There's a bunch of uh, character actors and actresses. Uh, who pop up in this movie. I believe Roxanne Hart is one of them. Uh, the guy who plays Mr. Lippman on Seinfeld is one of them. Um, a, a very interesting sort of a cast of, uh, you know, here and there actors. This film premiered at the Toronto Film Festival on September 9th, 2002. It then opened limited release September 27th, 2002, and then wide one week later. Uh, I'm not sure the wide release ended up doing much for it. It made uh, very little money in the fall of 2002. I think it's a big part of its problem. But uh, Chris, I'm going to yes. give you 60 seconds to do the plot of Moonlight Mile. Are you ready? I believe that I am. All right. Get ready to save my life tonight with this plot description. <laughs> you will start now. Okay. So we meet the fo- uh, the Floss family. Uh, ben and Jojo are suffering uh, or grieving the murder of their daughter, who was engaged to uh, young Joe, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, who has been living with them since their um, uh, since she was murdered. Uh, they are preparing for the trial of her murderer. Uh, Joe's giant secret is that they actually broke up right before she um, was murdered. So he has been working uh, in Ben's uh, commercial realty office. Jojo's a writer. She has been struggling to uh, not uh, be able to write. Meanwhile, uh, Joe falls in love with a postal work post office worker bar lady played by Ellen Pompeo. Her name is Birdie. She um, has a long lost love, but he was also abusive to her. Her and they like have this love story that like comes and goes because Joe can't like deal with his emotions. Whatever. Eventually, um, Joe does out that they had broken up to the family, but he also has to serve on trial and like make her come to life. But like the secret is weighing on and him. And that's um, time. Yeah, <laughs> we don't see the events of the uh, you know trial, but uh, we don't see the outcome uh, of the trial. No. Yeah, in real the, life. Uh, I believe uh, Rebecca Schaefer's murderer went to prison for uh, right. quite a bit of time. And as I said, that was one of sort of Marsha Clark's early uh, legal successes. Um, she, of course, had a very notable legal failure. But, you know, we'll talk about that. Or maybe we won't. Yeah. So, yeah, the places where this story departs from the real life sort of inspiration to it. Obviously, the time that it takes place is one of them. Also, obviously, the place, the setting. This is very East Coast. This is, uh, I believe it was filmed in a few towns in Massachusetts, where uh, it is the generally... Type of towns that are frozen in time, and you can conceivably set a movie in the uh, 1970s. I do love, I do love that exact kind of Massachusetts town. It probably helps that my mom is from uh, that <laughs> very uh, milieu. But, um... Yeah, I think the fact that the Gyllenhaal character moves on to somebody new while this stuff is so immediate, I believe that is a sort of contracting of, you know, what happened in real life. Obviously, Silberling at some point did move on. I believe I read in a article about the making of the movie that the trial was still going on when he first was starting to date 
somebody new and that that actually caused a lot of problems with that relationship. I think the new girlfriend what didn't quite know how to feel about how invested he had to be in the trial uh, at the time. And for the movie, it feels like what that relationship more so functions as is this like uh, accelerating of Joe's guilt and like gives this kind of impetus almost for him to finally confess that, you know, to the flosses, you know, that the engagement, they were essentially best friends, but they had grown to not really be in love with each other and like that that's not what they wanted to do it's also that uh, when she was murdered in this diner she was going there to meet her father to tell him him about the situation and that's kind of why he keeps it a secret because joe feels like he's the reason that it happened right that if he had broken off the relationship several months earlier uh as they were sort of that if they if they had uh, you know come clean about the breakup Earlier, she would not have been uh, there to talk to her dad on that day. Um, there's a lot of, you know, the what ifs of grief and the the aftermath of grief is obviously not a subject that is uh, foreign to uh, movies. I think there are a lot of right. movies that are about grief in one way or another and why in the aftermath of grief, some people get closer together and some people sort of are driven farther apart. I think this movie really gets into just how differently people grieve from one another. I think especially Mm -hmm. when you look at the Sarandon and Hoffman characters, I think Sarandon's character grieves in a very sort of uh, controlled and angry way. I think they're both angry in their different ways, right? And she very much wants to be upfront with her anger with him. She wants to sort of talk shit about all their friends who are giving them platitudes at various, uh, you know, at the, at the funeral breakfast and, and when they come to visit afterwards and everything like that. And he wants in, he's keeping most of it in his anger and frustration. He's in gets, like emotional denial, yeah. but like this weird kind of like uh matter of factness about like the, business of griefing you know and like dealing with these people the and... thing that he gets most angry about is the diner hasn't replaced the window that got shot out uh, that's one of the... the things that i don't like about this. that feels very screenwriterly to me that feels very say, it feels very uh screenwriting class it, it feels does. like it does give this uh task basically that can symbolize the arc of his grief in a tidy way in the movie and i feel like this movie has a weird relationship between saying well grief isn't all that tidy and trying to give these characters these like easy marks to say that they are able to move on and like for jojo it's that she's writing again by the end of the movie I think that works better, maybe because Sarandon's performance sort of makes me more at ease with that character a little bit more. But um, but yeah, the thing about the window definitely feels very, very screenwriter. Because he goes and he ends the movie because he used to get like ice cream with his daughter there. And he goes and he pays for an ice cream cone and gives them like 50 bucks or something. And they try to be like, oh, this is too much money. He's like, no, you can fix your window with the rest of the money. There are a few things like that in the movie that I feel like some of them sort of irk me less than others i think one of the things is the the where uh diana the daughter had been trying to learn italian and had sort of put stickers all around the house of 
the names of the Italian names of these little objects to help herself sort of learn Italian. And by the end of the movie, there's a almost like ritualistic sort of like removing of the stickers. We're letting her go, which is also fairly screenwriter. And it also does this kind of really just like corny thing. Like it feels like that like character beat exists in the screenplay just so you can get the end of the movie where everybody's looking up into the camera and it's like it just really cheapens that to me also was that was like oh these are your city of angels shots too like uh, a little (laughs) bit these are for your trailer sir i would say some of those things though don't bother me as much even though i can recognize them as kind of screenwriter crutches i think We've talked a lot about like uh, screenwritery crutches that are always courtroom dramas. Like this movie in the final fifteen minutes becomes a courtroom drama, and I right hate right. it. Yes, um, I do. I like it because it gets this Holly Hunter, and I'm never going to turn up my nose at more Holly Hunter. Um, she's in this movie very, very uh, briefly. Actually, it's almost sort of like an extended cameo kind of a thing. Although she's very effective mm-hmm. when she is in there. But I was going to say, I think I I forgive a lot of the sort of crutches that this movie uses, in part because of the sort of you know real life inspiration for it. I want to cut this movie a little bit of slack, but I think also right. um, I think the stuff that I think there's some really well-observed moments of dialogue and writing that are, like, performed very well, yes, but I don't want to, like, completely be like, well, this is just the performer and not the writer. I think there's the moment where um, Gyllenhaal and Ellen Pompeo are sort of – he when he first tells her the truth of the matter, which is that they had – he and Diana had broken up three months before the murder, and part of it is this sort of, like, confession scene about, you know, what – they weren't as a couple. But then he sort of rounds it back to, he says, I lost my friend. And I was like, oh, that's a very, that's a very simple and declarative way to bring that conversation around. And yet it's very effective because ultimately it strips everything else away of the, the, deceit and the the you know the fact that there is a secret now being uncovered and all of this, and it just like boils it down to engaged or not he lost his friend and and it and it communicates to me the sort of the deepness of their bond in very very sort of plain terms i think there's a lot of the dialogue with him and sarandon when they have that uh when they have that conversation in the living room where she and hoffman just sort of had this a uh, bit of a fight and he goes to walk the dog as sort of his is his response to conflict in this movie as he goes to walk the dog and she's sort of telling Hall's character why they stay together even though it does seem like they do an awful lot of arguing and fighting and she talks about how you know every night she can go to bed and she can turn over on her side and she can stick her butt out and she knows that like there will be this man there with her to sort of you know spoon up next to her and put his arms around her and without question and i think Beyond the fact that it's an impeccably performed scene, it is a really, 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 like, it makes me wish she had been nominated for something just so that could have been used as a clip. And <laughs> it's a good monologue, even though, like, it feels screenwritery class. Oh, I of think a it's, monologue, I really it's like it. I really good. like it. Yeah. Um, I also, so uh, in preparation for doing this movie, I texted um, my friend Patrick, who was in a few episodes of Dash and Lily, the Netflix series Dash and Lily, which Silberling had uh, directed 
episodes of. And so I was just like, we're doing Moonlight Mile. I was like, any, any slibberling sort of, you know, dish or whatever. And he just had the most lovely things to say about uh, working with Brad Silberling. And he also sort of, he wrapped it up with just like, and he married Amy Brenneman. I'm just like, I know. And, you know, that's almost, you know, uh, as much of a point in his favor as anything else, uh, obviously. Uh, and if you look back and like Toronto Film Festival, like red carpet photos from this movie, like he and Brenneman are there uh, on the red carpet for this movie. And um, I think there's, for as much as sometimes we feel like we can pull out who these writer directors personalities are from this movie and sometimes we can and sometimes we can sometimes i feel like we're you know i'm full of shit when i feel like i think i can like extrapolate but like he seems like a good dude i don't know it doesn't and seem like there's any uh misguided he doesn't seem preening movie. at all in this movie for somebody who like obviously like you cast jake gyllenhaal as yourself in a movie like uh, you know that's hollywood 2002 you know what I mean? jake gyllenhaal right right that. this was this was uh but this was like awkward teen jake gyllenhaal year right this was like uh uh you know? Well, oh one, oh two, Jake Gyllenhaal, where he's ubiqui- ubiquitous and everywhere too. It kind of like, I think at the time was perceived to be playing on like variations on a similar character, like you know either brooding and weird or like sweetheart and weird. I'm talking about Bubble Boy. Um, this movie, I feel like you cast him for a lot of his quiet awkwardness is sort of there's a mm-hmm. there's an inarticulateness to his character that i think is baked in that obviously jake gyllenhaal is not an inarticulate actor but i think he at that time had been playing characters who weren't always um able to sort of verbalize what their deal was and obviously like at the time uh the the movie studio which i think it was always I don't think it bounced around for too much. I think Spielberg for a while wanted to make it a DreamWorks. And then after mm-hmm. American Beauty, he was just like, I'm not going to do anything too similar. It's odd, odd that he sort of painted this movie as similar to American Beauty. I think when you boil down to it, I guess they're both family dramedies. But like, that's sort of where the similarities end, if you ask me. Yeah. Um, but anyway. Parents fighting. The studio wanted people like brad pitt or johnny depp to play the the joe role in this film and like i think that would have been all wrong the character would have been too old too old but also too dynamic i feel like i think this movie works because gyllenhaal is able to sort of be the less shining able to be articulate about being inarticulate well but also it's just like he obviously you put him in a scene with susan sarandon susan sarandon's going to be like the much bigger star the much bigger presence the much bigger sort of Mm -hmm. life force on the on the screen same thing with dustin hoffman and i think that plays into what the story needs to be very well even with alan pompeo who at the time was like a total unknown like that was another one where he had to really fight for Ellen Pompeo to play this role because nobody knew her from Adam at this point. I think this was... I do really like Ellen Pompeo. This was, I think, the same year she was in Old School, and those were, like, the first two things I'd ever seen her in. And even she, in her scenes with Gyllenhaal, she's the much more dynamic player, which is funny because Jake Gyllenhaal rightly has become a huge movie star. And, you know, obviously, I really love Jake Gyllenhaal, but, like, he plays... He's able to credibly play as the sort of lesser light in these in these scenes. And I think Pompeo is really fantastic in this movie. And it surprises me that obviously once she got Grey's Anatomy, she became a TV star and she's stuck in that lane. And I don't think she, I don't think she regrets not becoming a movie star. Um, I think if you talk to her, obviously 
monetarily it's really worked out for her um but it's surprising to me after this movie that she didn't get more romantic lead movie roles or even just like lead movie roles obviously the you know dearth of roles for women is has been and continues to be an issue but um she's very impressive in this movie i don't know how i feel about the character but like i'm always i was always grateful when she was on screen because like it, it again not to say keep saying screenwriting class about this movie but yeah. like it's it's not a manic pixie dream girl but it's kind of close her character is a little bit like the grieving uh protagonist can like fall in love with this like kind of wounded uh and they they write her a backstory that sort of dovetails with his where she's managing this local bar and uh the owner of the bar was her sort of on and off sounds like boyfriend who now this goes back into the kind of quietness of the time and place of this movie where like this guy went off to vietnam and never came back and it's been three years and he's technically missing but nobody really believes Uh, well and he was abusive right well there was also that so there's a lot of stuff that is written into um her sort of relationship with this guy and what she's waiting around for but um yeah i think i don't think all of that is necessary. I don't think we really needed to parallel their paths or sort of contrast their paths as much as this movie does. I will. I mean, it's it should be noted. You know, Silberling, as I said, directed two movies before this. This is his first original screenplay. Um, so, like the the somewhat amateur choices here, I think are explicable like yes like they are sure it it is an amateur writer at work not to like you know uh explain it away or like not to excuse it but it's very much in the mold of the type of drama that was like popular in the mid to late 90s you know so you can kind of see where some of the like influences if not like direct Mm -hmm. influences like this movie was an inspiration point for it but like the vibe the like type of story you know yeah um i want to circle back around to jake gyllenhaal for a bit we talked about what a little bit about you know what kind of a year this was for him we uh we did a imdb game a few weeks ago uh where uh october sky was a no not october sky bubble bubble boy was a uh, bubble boy was who was it? Who was in Bubble Boy that showed up in the IMDb game? Was it Swoozy Kurtz? Am I, it was. I'm going to be forever Swoozie haunted Kurtz? by Swoozy Kurtz. You can't do that to me again. Um. So yeah, the uh, the ubiquity or lack thereof of Bubble Boy was definitely a topic of conversation. <laughs> so that was 2001. We talked about how 2001 was sort of the breakthrough year for. Uh, Hall between that and Donnie Darko, both in 2001. 2002 was like the, oh, now this is the follow-up year where he's in a ton of things. And so it's... Well, and at at the point of Moonlight Mile, too, it, it felt like there was almost this, like, not fully mainstream, because none of these movies, well, that was the point. None of these movies really made money. Right. And, like, there was this kind of backlash against him of, he's in all of these movies. Was there a backlash? Do you think so? 
It. I mean, it was. I remember before the day after tomorrow came out because, like, he went away to become a leading big movie. Yeah, and it was this question of: Is he really going to be a movie star? Mm. None of these ten thousand movies he's been in have really completely taken off. But like, in hindsight, I think that that was unfair because, like, sure, Donnie Darko was. uh, considered a big failure after how it was received at Sundance. And a lot of that is because it was released right after 9-11. But things like Lovely and Amazing, he's in it less than you remember. Like, right. was Bubble Boy ever going to be a successful movie? Right. Like, Well, that's the thing. is I think the trio of Lovely and Amazing, The Good Girl, and to some extent Moonlight Mile, even though, as I said, his character in this is different than I think you can twin the characters in Lovely and Amazing and The Good Girl, where he's the sort of younger man who is something of a manifestation of your lead female character's um, personal life going awry. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That like we know that Catherine Keener is going through it because she has this you know flirtatious and and uh, uh, odd romantic dalliance with Jake Gyllenhaal. We know that Jennifer Aniston is not in a great place because of, you know, what's up with her and Gyllenhaal in this movie. And I think Moonlight Mile, he's not quite the teenage creeper that he is in those two movies, but it is again a performance that is decidedly quieter and more and more sort of awkward. He plays that sort of, you know, mop- the era of Jake Gyllenhaal playing teenage or young 20s men who seemingly never wash their hair yeah but the thing about the span that goes between you're right so like he's you know goes away for a little bit while he's sort of morphing into this leading man he comes back with the day after tomorrow but i think in the interim i think one thing that's important to note is donnie darko was a failure as a sort of theatrical release but in that interim donnie darko had become a pretty good cult success Mm -hmm. on home video and or dvd um and i think that was an important consideration there and the other thing is how much do you really have to prove yourself to be a lead in the day after tomorrow like i love the junkiness of that movie (laughs) do you know what i mean like that is one of my favorite it's on cable in the middle of a saturday and i can just park myself in front of there and like check my email or do other things and it's just like it's a perfect B minus of a movie, and I'm very fine with that. I'm like, but totally the thing fine is, like, people treated that like, oh, well, he's finally in a big movie. He's still playing one of these little feckless dweebs in that movie. Like, it's still the Listen, same. He character. faces down those CGI werewolves with a or werewolves, <laughs> those CGI wolves uh, with a plum. They're both they're both as equally uh, realistic. The wolves uh, or werewolves uh, uh, in. Uh, in Day After Tomorrow. Anyway, but yeah, and also people forget the fact that, like, Dennis Quaid is as much of the lead of that movie as Jake Hall. It's not like Gyllenhaal's oh, shouldering absolutely. that entire movie on his shoulders. Like, he's, you know, the lead of the teen half of that movie. And, like, Dennis Quaid is the actual lead of that movie. Isn't Emmy Rossum the love interest of that movie? She is, yeah. It's Emmy Rossum who, and wow. it's also Austin Nichols, who was, like, Jake Gyllenhaal's, like, best pal at the time, who plays his, like, best buddy, who, like, the two of them are sort of, like, romantically involved with her. Um, Day After Tomorrow is, as far as I'm concerned, perfectly good, uh, junky cinema. Um, not junky cinema, not, uh, uh, what's the fucking 
Safdie's movie that I hate. Um, <laughs> Good time or no? Uh, heaven the, knows what. Heaven knows what. Heaven knows what is is classic junkie cinema. But uh, Day After Tomorrow is classic junk cinema. Anyway, um, and then in two thousand five, obviously Gyllenhaal then levels up with Brokeback Mountain and Jarhead, which is you know. How dare you eliminate proof from? Well, but he's a supporting player in proof. I think when I when I mean leveling up, I mean playing the lead in uh, very sort of like director driven uh, prestige movies, Brokeback Mountain and Jarhead. Anyway, what I what I'm leading up to is the fact that this is our sixth time uh, taking taking Jake Gyllenhaal around the block in our. uh, in our little convertible sedan. I don't know. I don't know what kind of metaphor. And wildly, our earliest Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. So, as we tend to do when we reach the sixth film in a performer's uh, filmography on this podcast, I like to give you a little quiz. We've been doing this a lot lately. We had our sixth Michelle Pfeiffer. We had our sixth Judy Dench. Who else did we have? Our sixth Natalie Portman. So like we're hitting the six timers, which again, I think our podcast is just old enough that we're just gonna be uh, hitting it's a lot. One hundred and fifty-five episodes. We're hitting that milestone. It's that thing where like you reach a certain age and all your friends start getting married and having babies. This is the this is <laughs> the stage that we are at with this podcast, where all of our friends are now becoming six timers. Um, so the six films that we've talked about of Jake Gyllenhaal's that I'm going to be quizzing you on are uh, Brothers, the uh, Mommy's Having Sex with Uncle Tommy All the Time film, Love and Other Drugs, the, uh, you know, Viagra movie, Rendition, Rendition, Zodiac, David Fincher's Zodiac, Proof, the aforementioned, uh, Chris could not allow me to get through. uh, It's a very important proof. It's a very important proof. And uh, finally, now Moonlight Mile. So, Chris, the quiz that I'm going to give you, the answer, answer or answers to all of these will be one or more of those movies. Are you ready to take the Jake Gyllenhaal six-timer quiz? I absolutely am. All right. We'll start with some basics. Which of those six films is the longest? Uh, Zodiac. Zodiac by a good margin. I feel like there's like a good 20 (laughs) to 25 minutes between the second uh, longest movie and Zodiac. All right. Which is the shortest? Love and Other Drugs? No. Brothers? No, it is actually Proof at a cool 100 minutes. Proof is the shortest of all of these movies. Interesting. Forgot it was that short. Yeah. Which two were the only two that were original screenplays? Uh, Moonlight Mile and Love and Other Drugs. No, that's based on an article. Um, uh, Well, Moonlight Mile is one of them. That is one of them. And Rendition? Rendition. Very good. The big question for this quiz is going to be how many times I use the Fiddler on the Roof uh, (laughs) intro (laughs) to when one or more of us says Rendition. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. You guys that are listening will already know uh, how insane I've decided to be. Yeah, if, if we don't do the drop, we do expect that you guys listening will mentally, every single time one of us says rendition, do the bump, 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 bump. Yeah. Okay. I, I am not happy unless I am running a repeated bit into the ground. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, that is that is our mission here. We definitely want to make you guys just yell at us at the, at the end of this and just be like, enough! Anyway. Which was the lowest rated Rotten Tomatoes score? 
Um, love and other drugs. You would think so, but no. Rendition. Rendition. 47% on Rotten Tomatoes. Which was the highest rated on Rotten Tomatoes? Zodiac. Yes, again, I don't think it's particularly close. Zodiac is the runaway longest and the runaway best reviewed at 89%. At 89%, I think it's too low on Rotten Tomatoes as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely, it's too low. All right. Which film... People were not on board with that movie right away like they should have been. Uh, Worldwide box office, which film made the most money? Love and Other Drugs. Love and Other Drugs cleared $100 million. $102.8 million worldwide box office. All that six. is wild that that is the highest grossing film of any kind of subset. Like, that's just... Listen, everybody around the globe is clamoring to watch Josh Gad jerk off. Okay, but also, on the real, you see Jake Gyllenhaal in a lot of nakedness in that movie. And like, mm-hmm. you know... $100 million worth of it? Yeah, I'll give that. Okay. The modesty uh, pouch was getting a lot of work. That's <laughs> Listen, funny. but you see his bum bum. So anyway, which film made the least money worldwide? Ooh. Uh, proof. No. Again, you would think so, but no. Was it Moonlight Mile? Moonlight Mile. $10 million worldwide. This movie really did not make very much money. Sorry, Brad. Sorry, Brad. Which film has a score by James Newton Howard? Ooh. Uh, rendition. No brothers no the fuck um proof <laughs> uh no uh, uh it's got to be love and other drugs it's though. love and other drugs yes exactly okay. which okay. film has cinema cool scored that movie <laughs> what's that i thought someone school cool had scored that movie listen james newton howard is as cool as the other side he's of the very pillow, cool man friend. he's yeah. cool we're not saying you're not cool but i meant like i thought it <laughs> right. was like some random like uh, i don't know atticus um, ross or something like that yeah yeah, or like a David Byrne. Right, Mark Mothersbaugh kind of a thing. Yeah. yeah. All right. Which film has cinematography by Dion Beebe? Um, uh, Rendition. Rendition. Very good. All right. Which two films were released in Sagittarius season? <laughs> so the mid-December back through Thanksgiving season. Uh, that would be Love and Other Drugs. Love and Other Drugs, November 24th. Just and Under rendition. the Wire. No, not Rendition. Uh, Jarhead. Not Jarhead. Jarhead. We didn't do Jarhead. Not yet. We could do Jarhead, could. and it always shocks me that we could. Mm-hmm. Brothers. Brothers was December I was thinking 4th. about involved. Yeah. Yes, well, yeah, you got it. December 4th for Brothers. Very good. Okay. Which is the only one of these six where Jake Gyllenhaal does not co-star with an Oscar-winning actress? Mm. Prior to... No. Oh, no, wait. That's a, that's a stupid question. It's Zodiac. It's uh, it, it, Chloe Sevigny does not Chloe have Chloe Sevigny, Oscar. nor does June Diane Raphael have an Oscar. Nor yes. does Ioni Sky. Right, unfortunately. Um, yeah, he's a lot of these movies are with uh, Oscar-winning actresses. Obviously, Natalie Portman in Brothers, Meryl Streep, and Reese Witherspoon in Rendition. Uh, Anne Hathaway, obviously, in Love and Other Drugs. Gwyneth in Proof, and Susan Sarandon in Moonlight Mile. Okay. Uh, Where did I leave off? Oscar-winning actresses. Which two films feature stars from the movie Garden State? Uh, Well, Natalie Portman and Peter Sarsgaard are both in Garden State, as is Armin Mueller-Stahl. 
It's mm, it's not Armin Mueller. No, 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 no. It's brothers because it's also uh, is it Mary? It's not Mary Kay Place. It's uh, not Mary Kay Place. You, but you've you've misidentified now two uh, older character actors. And Dowd. And Dowd. Well, and Dowd. Yeah. So uh, sorry, I thought you were thinking of Gene Smart, who was also in Garden State. But yes, and Gene Dowd. Smart. And Dowd is in. Uh, is and Dowd in Brothers? I don't know. Oh, I don't know. Let me tell you, I remember, you know what I remember about Brothers? I remember one thing. I re- remember that Mommy and Uncle Tommy are having sex all the time. Yeah. So who's, mom- so who's Mommy? Uh, Natalie Portman. Right. So there's one of them. Oh, it's not one movie. It's two movies. Two movies. Two films feature stars of Garden State. Now I understand. Yes. Now I understand. Yeah. Um, but anyway, to correct you though, it is not Armin Mueller style. It is Ian Holm in Garden State. Ah, well, what's the Ian Holm movie? I'm not saying there is one. I'm just correcting you. Oh, okay. Why did I think it was Armin Mueller style? I don't know, but it's not. I'm Unless just trying they're to put both some respect on Armin Mueller style's name. We don't no, talk I get about it. him. I get it. Um, um, I want to make sure that Armin Mueller style is also not because if I am disrespecting Oscar nominee uh, Armin Mueller style, that's on me. I mean, it's not Gene Smart, because Gene Smart's not in any of these movies. Right. Correct. Yeah, Armin is not in Garden State. Peter, so. Is it Peter Sarsgaard? Oh, Peter Sarsgaard's in Rendition. Very much so, yes. Peter Sarsgaard in... Rendition, Natalie Portman in Brothers are the two. Yes, okay. Which Brothers-in-law. Fil- which two films feature stars from Succession? Ooh. Uh, well, Brian Cox is in Zodiac. Yes. Brian Cox is very good in Zodiac. He's very good in Zodiac, and he's very good in Succession. Um, and he's very good in the McDonald's commercials that you did not even realize until today. text you this morning because it was on in the background with the Tour de France, and I was like, Brian Cox is doing McDonald's commercials now, and apparently this is a thing that I didn't know because I don't watch commercials. For several years. I'm just sad for you that you have not been able to... Several years? Several years. Years. years for at least two or three years, yes. That you have been denied the joy of hearing in your internal monologue every time you go and pick up, you know, a quarter pound with cheese, Brian Cox going, ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It is so fucking funny it's the greatest thing brian about cox doing ba 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 which is really more like ba da ba da ba it's ba da ba 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 it's just it's it's, it's like it's so right. tossed he off doesn't get it right no but it's so it's good perfect um, no this commercial he was talking about uh chicken mcnuggets and it was it was very soothing um what other things has he talked about for mcdonald's Oh, everything. Literally, there was a there was an ad campaign when it first started where, like, literally every little thing on their menu had its own little Brian Cox uh, ad. Go on YouTube and just search Brian Cox McDonald's. You'll have, like, 30 different videos to watch. It's amazing. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is, like, pornographic. Yeah. Um, the other answer is Moonlight Mile because of Holly Hunter. Yes, very good. Holly Hunter was great on Succession. Oh, I loved her. All right. Anyway, uh, can we talk about no the we, teaser, we're not, the we're, Succession we're not teaser, season three? Derailed by Succession season three. We're not. Doing oh, it. but that teaser was so good, so good, so fucking good. Uh, fuck a kiss from Daddy. What we all want, <laughs> what we really want, is a spit from Shiv. Shiv spinning into spit on a, me journal. Like a journal. Shivroy. <laughs> also, that part at the end. I don't know who that actress is who do, who's playing. Uh, uh, the assistant who's just like he's laughing but it's not it's not a nice laugh 
That's great. All right. Anyway. Um, all right. Succession. Yada, yada, yada. Okay. Which film was directed by someone with exactly one Best Director nomination? Um, proof. Proof. Directed by John Madden, director of uh, Shakespeare in Love. Which yep. two films were directed by people with multiple Best Director nominations? Zodiac. Zodiac. Three-time nominee uh, David Fincher. Not Love and Other Drugs. Um, no, Brothers, Jim Sheridan. Jim Sheridan has been nominated twice for... Uh, In the Name of the Father and Not My Left Foot. What's the other one? Are it you... wasn't in America. No, wasn't in America. What's the other one? I don't know if you're exactly correct in your assumptions, my friend. Was he nominated for My Left Foot? He was nominated for My Left Foot. Yep. Really? Best director. I didn't remember that. Okay. okay. Uh, which film's tagline was, the biggest risk in life is not taking one? <laughs> well, that's a stupid tagline. It's a very stupid tagline. It could apply the to almost anything. biggest li- risk in life is not taking one? It's got to be love and other drugs. It's not. It could be. It could apply to that movie, but it's not. Is it proof? It's proof. How is that stupid. a tagline to proof? That's so dumb. God damn it. Like, come on, marketing people. All right. Which were the only two films to not screen at either Cannes, Venice, or Toronto? Uh, Brothers. Brothers. And Love and Other Drugs. Love and Other Drugs, which did AFI Fest, but not uh, the other ones. All right. Didn't Rendition? Did Rendition? Rendition was TIFF. Oh, okay. And Brother was Brothers AFI? No, Brothers did not do any festivals. Yeah, they just dumped it on that post-Thanksgiving weekend. Yeah. All right. About which film did Peter Travers write? This movie is best treated like dim sum. Wait out the bad portions until a tastier dish is served. Don't compare movies to food, Peter Travers. (laughs) This is what I was thinking. But yes. Yikes, Peter Travers. Um, Love and Other Drugs? Love and Other Drugs. According to Peter Travers, the dim sum of movies. All right. And finally, about which film did Rex Reed write, manipulative and brush-stroked with so much Disney gloss it looks polyurethaned? I mean, probably Moonlight Mile, but with Rex Reed, it could be anything. It's Moonlight Mile, and that's a bitchy-ass quote. Like, that's a lot. You were in Myra Breckenridge, Rex Reed. (laughs) All right. Now, uh, as I like to do, we transition uh, from that quote back into Moonlight Mile. Yeah, I think that's I think that's too harsh. I would say that's too harsh about this movie. Too harsh. I think this is a a movie with uh, its heart in the right place. And I think that emerges in uh, some very interesting ways. So. Susan Sarandon. I mean, like, maybe this is also because, like, where we are with Disney now, but, like, that quote's just like, what are you talking about? Like, right. Also, this is like, I get it, like, Touchstone is Disney, and I know, but, like, Touchstone that same year had 25th hour and signs. Well, like, I guess, I guess signs you could probably, like, try and, like, graft the Disney thing onto it, but, like, it's not like Touchstone was making these, like, you know, uniformly syrupy Disney whatever. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. It's lazy. It's lazy. Speaking of Brian Cox being great and giving great monologues. Oh my God. What a great monologue in 25th Hour. 25th Hour. Terrence Blanchard nominated. No, Terrence Blanchard wasn't nominated for that. No, because he was only nominated for um, first time for uh, The Five Bloods. Uh, I thought he was he nominated for Black Klansman. No, you're right. I think it was right. I thought that was his first nomination. That was his first nomination. He should have like three Oscars. Yeah. Um, 
No, his score for 25th Hour is phenomenal. Um, 25th Hour, like 25th I said... 25th Hour, the end of that movie, like, I would absolutely hate it in another movie, and it's genius. There's movie. so much in 25th Hour that shouldn't work. The, mo- the, the monologue that Edward Norton does into the mirror in that movie that sort mm-hmm. of, you know, goes across the length and breadth of New York City and uh, is so risky. I think it's such a uh-huh. risk. And Spike Lee just, like, carries that off so super well. Um, Spike Lee directs the shit out of that movie. That's maybe a screenplay that in anybody else's hands I would despise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He like, oh, he, uh, he does such a good job. So, well, to transition then into Touchstone that year, because I put this in our outline. Um, again, Moonlight Mile making only 10 million worldwide and getting very sort of like middling 60 something percent Rotten Tomatoes. It was dead level. in November. It was dead uh, in October uh, when it uh, when it premiered, basically. But like that same year, uh, Touchstone has, well, signs in the summer, which, you know, it's sort of folly to count on any August release to be an Oscar success, but it is M. Night Shyamalan who did have Oscar success with The Sixth Sense from August. So, like, it was not out of the question. And I think there are elements of signs that you could absolutely have credibly pushed to Oscar nominations if the temperature was right. You know what I mean? I think it's a movie that looks fantastic. It's a movie that sounds fantastic. And while I don't think it's a acting nominee anywhere, even though I think there are performances that are really good. I actually think Joaquin Phoenix is one of my favorite Joaquin Phoenix performances in science. I think he's strangely kind of funny in that movie. He's um, very funny in that movie. So, but science obviously not a player come awards uh, season time. Sweet Home Alabama is a Golden Globe nominee for Reese Witherspoon, and rightly so, but doesn't really have any prospects anywhere else. But I think 25th Hour is a movie where It really feels like there was a push for that movie. It's released at the very end of 2002. It is... I can't remember whether it was really, really well-reviewed at the time or only pretty well-reviewed at the time and then, like, its esteem has only, like, grown and grown and grown. But Definitely, its esteem has grown regardless. Yes. but... But that is a movie that I feel like if, you know... In a slightly different parallel world, you could see 25th Hour getting five or six Oscar nominations, possibly a Best Picture nomination. It, mm-hmm. uh, I think if they had – I don't know how ready we were in the fall and winter of 2002 to deal with a movie that spoke to 9-11 on an emotional level the way that movie did. Not directly, but like that is a movie that has the soul of post-9-11 – America, but specifically New York City, in its bones. Mm -hmm. And maybe it was not enough time, maybe not enough space and distance in between that for that to be really appreciated for that, for what it is. And also, I think the subject matter of a movie where, like, the actual plot is about this guy who's going to be sent to jail and is sort of trying to, you know, find a way to get out of the more unseemly aspects of being in jail. Like a lot of that movie is weirdly about him not wanting to get like raped in prison for being too pretty, which is an odd little, you know, I think yeah. that's sort of maybe what you're talking about when you say like in another person's hands, that screenplay is kind of despicable. Yeah. I think Spike Lee maybe has a different uh, perspective than the screenplay does. One would um, imagine. So that's why the movie is good. Yes. But anyway, um, it's interesting. I think in hindsight, 25th hour is one of those movies that you're just like, how did that movie not get a bunch of Oscar nominations? Cause it's clearly one of the best movies of that year. 
Yeah. I feel like... Well, I mean, here's the thing about, like, post-9-11 movies, and this is maybe also why, like, A Moonlight Mile was not ready to be embraced, because, like, even something, like, in the bedroom already had, like, Sundance rays and stuff, so Mm -hmm. it was already established Mm -hmm. for what it was, and maybe if it had been released on its own, people would have... Like, people were not really ready to deal with a certain type of actual palpable grief. That's why, like... yeah most of like what actually did work with Oscar this year is like the spectacle of Chicago, right. the spectacle of Lord of the Rings, right. like the spectacle of the, games of New York, even, you know, what the I mean? hours we obviously appreciate it probably for different reasons than Oscar did, but right. like, that like, there's a reason why that movie is considered quintessential Oscar bait. Like, right. Right. The pianist was like uh, dealing with the Holocaust in, in a right. way you that can like, put, Oscar's going to respond to. You could put like, your feelings for the pianist in a historical context that doesn't make you sort of linger on what's going. Even something like about Schmidt, which like is very very much a contemporary movie, mm-hmm. but like but is none about, of it is actually deal. None of these things were actually dealing with right. what we as a culture were going through. And to, in a certain way, you could say it's actively avoiding it. Well, about um, Schmidt is about sort of like burrowing ever further into the Midwest sort of geographically. And like, that's not all that that movie is about, but like that movie doesn't really, you know, make you think about, you know, the current events of what was happening. It is very much, you know, America sort of turning inward and dealing with itself and dealing with its own sort of, you know, things in, in a way that doesn't touch upon its borders in any way. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I also think I mean, that... I really, like, this is, a, I will uh, stick to this point until the day that I die. The only movies that I really feel like Oscar subconsciously really uh, rewarded or, like, went for that, like, were very much wrapped in our, like, immediate aftermath of 9-11 psychosis are the Lord of the Rings movies. Oh, go on. Well, it's it's very much this like large scale uh sharp definition between good and evil uh this collective effort type of thing like a very much our subconscious relationship with those movies yeah. I believe were informed by 9/11. Yeah. That's a really good point. I don't think we I talk about, I don't think we think about that as much um with those movies, but I think you're right. There's probably smarter than me. People smarter than me. Who's smarter than you? Get out of here. All right. Um, I want to talk about Susan Sarandon in a sort of more, uh, a broader sense. We've talked about how much we love her in this movie, and I do. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is an interesting year for her. This is a sort of multiple movie year for her where there after after a few years where i think the biggest sort of thing that she had been in before this was previous this had oscar buzz uh, film anywhere but here i think in between anywhere but here and then her movies in 2002 she's in joe gould's secret but that's obviously like a very very independent film um she's a voice in of course rugrats in paris the movie which of course she's a voice in cats and dogs so, but that's really all she's Obviously doing. should have been her second Oscar. Right. Um, and then she might have done some TV in the interim there as well, actually, now that I think about it. She was, well, she was, actually, no, she was just in an episode of Friends and in an episode of Malcolm in the Middle. So, uh, anyway, that was kind of a, it was a quiet period for her. So, 2002. How old were her kids at that point, though? She could have been focusing on that. Well, one of her movies, 2002, The Banger Sisters, co-stars her daughter, Ava. So, um, she was a teenager. In that film. So maybe. Yeah. Um, and let's not forget uh, Stepmom. Well, Stepmom 98. Yes. So even earlier than uh, 
in, uh, in there. Oh, eight Eva is in uh, in Stepmom as well. Is that what we're saying? No, I was just saying uh, Stepmom. We can't forget Stepmom. Well, of course we can never forget Stepmom. So her three films that she's in in 2002 are Moonlight Mile, The Banger Sisters, aforementioned, which I watched again on cable a couple weekends ago. It was just sort of randomly on, and I was not going to turn up my nose. And then (laughs) Igby Goes Down, where she gets a Golden Globe nomination for that film. Uh, I think that, I think the difference between Igby goes down, her character in Igby goes down and her character in Moonlight Mile is very, very instructive about what sort of was going on for her in that awards season where she plays the mother to the titular Igby played by Kieran Culkin in the film, another star of succession. Um, And her character is this very kind of, disastrous alcoholic upper east side it's a very big character i think she's does a good job in that film but there that is that's not necessarily a person who's just like oh i recognize that person even you know unless you're in a very very specific circumstance i think that is very very specific comedy at that Sure, yeah, and she's obviously playing to the comedy of it. It's a bigger performance. I think she is is leaps and bounds better in Moonlight Mile, but in a very, very much quieter character. And mm-hmm. while I, I would have definitely preferred a nomination for Moonlight Mile, it surprises me zero that the voters for the Golden Globes actually preferred Igby Goes Down. It also preferred her Banger Sisters co-star, Goldie Hawn. Goldie Hawn was a uh, Best Actress in a Comedy nominee for... Well, and Goldie Hawn was more of like a comeback, because Goldie Hawn did not many movies. Well, and that was her last movie before... Uh, oh, boy. Uh, the the Amy Schumer movie. What was that movie called again? Snatched or something. Right. I, God, what a disappointment. I've still never seen it. I couldn't bring you myself once to. everybody was like talked about how bad it was. I'm like, I can't let that be my next Goldie Hawn uh, memory. I would love for Goldie Hawn to do another movie soon. That it's is unfortunate, but you don't need Goldie Hawn to do another movie. No, Goldie I Hawn know. Goldie Hawn is on Instagram. I mean, yes, of course we do. I don't. I don't want to, you know, be so like. No, uh, I know. Uh, She's got. You had the best it. idea for bringing her into another movie, Chris, and I want you to talk about it right now. Wait, what was this idea? Well, you just mentioned Instagram. What was when I when we talked about her latest Instagram where she was doing uh Oh, yes. I said she needs to be in Mama Thria. She does need to be in Mama Thria. And what did I say? She and Cher in a love triangle with Andy Garcia. Yes. As cuz I said she should play Dominic Cooper's mother. Well, yes, she should play Dominic Cooper's mother. Love triangle with Cher and Andy Garcia that becomes a triad. Yeah, they can be a polyamorous yes. thruple, and the song that they do is "People Need Love." See, you've already got it sketched out. We're saying this because she was on Instagram dancing on a beach to uh to Abba. It was to Mamma Mia, right? The I song so. Mamma Mia. Yeah, she was having the best time. I think this was on like the Fourth of July. <laughs> She was just having the if best time. If you don't time. follow Goldie, you just really need to do. You're it. only getting half the story. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> Moonlight Mile, I think, is definitely the uh, the least sort of glitzy of her three films in 2002. We're watching the Banger Sisters. She's quite good in that movie. She definitely like Goldie's the more uh, 
she's funnier. She's the more sort of like personality forward in that she's film. She's the one that like jokes about blowjobs. Goldie rules in that to movie. Be the wild one. But Susan's the one with like the actual character conflict in that one, right? Where she's like the former, you know, good time girl, Everything and now I she's own is beige. right now she's like very settled down, and she's the stern mother to eternal shitty teen Erica Christensen. Like, I like Erica Christensen as an actress, but man, did that girl get typecast as just, like, nightmare teenage girls. We're between Traffic (laughs) and Banger Sisters, and then she's the titular swim fan. Like, she's just... Oh, boy. Um, And then Eva Amuri is the other sort of, like, even... She's the more just, like... She's the bratty daughter who just, like, whines and cries about everything. Whereas, like, Erica Christensen's the daughter who's just like, I wish you weren't my mother and I hate you. Um, and I don't know. It's a good movie. It's not a great movie, but I would say it's a good movie. And we need movies like that that are uh, that are at that level. But, yeah, I think by leaps and bounds, her performance in Moonlight Mile is, like, it's a real highlight. And it's a bummer that it couldn't get more. Like, that's a movie where it's just, like, if it's just, you know, that left field SAG nominee for supporting actress that doesn't get her anything else. I'm like, that's the level she deserved for this performance. I think. Yeah, that would make sense. Right. 2002 supporting actress though. Now I want to bring up who the SAG nominees nominees were because was it the same as the Oscar nominees? No, because Meryl wasn't nominated. Right. Okay. Um, let me bring up. Though here. the thing about this supporting actress race, and of course we're always going to talk about it. The thing is, that list of nominees, I feel like, is 100% the list of nominees it was always ultimately going to be. And, of course, like nothing yeah. would have ultimately stopped Catherine Zeta-Jones from winning. Though I do think, like, we, there, she had some competition, but, like, on in no version of events did she not win. No, regardless. I agree. We did talk about this recently because this was the year that Michelle Pfeiffer for White Oleander was a SAG nominee. Mm-hmm. This was because Meryl in Adaptation was submitted as a lead in Adaptation for the SAG Awards and was not nominated for anything as a result. Um, which I feel like is sort of like a slap on the wrist of just like, don't go outside the lane. Like, don't, you know, <laughs> we've decided what your category placement is for this award season. I think there were many people who sort of assumed that Meryl in adaptation was probably second place to Catherine Zeta-Jones, and I have no reason to think otherwise. But like, I think you're right. Like, there was no version of events that wasn't going to end up with Catherine Zeta-Jones winning the Oscar. A very well-deserved Oscar, I should say. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think Julianne Moore in The Hours, obviously I adore, but obviously I feel like all three of those women are the leads of that movie, so I don't love that she's in supporting in this film. Um, Queen Latifah in Chicago rules, and I love that nomination. Kathy Bates is an actress I love, I think her performance in About Schmidt is very good and is probably in my top 10 for supporting actress that year, but probably wouldn't have made. Actually, I remember almost nothing for that movie. But like my problem with that nomination is like, yes, she's very good, but like people weren't talking about she's very mm, good. You're right. They treated it like how brave she is to be naked on screen. Yes. It's like, Fuck That's you. right. She had that famous scene where she's naked in the hot tub, and you're right. That was the narrative of it. Was, she wants to be naked in a movie. Let her be naked. In Kathy a movie. Bates is great. Not skinny, and she's naked in a movie. Like the absolute bravery of it all, and it's just like fuck off with your backhanded compliments. Like yeah, fuck every single one of you. Um, but I do love. I do love. Kathy. This was sort of my feeling with uh, Richard Jewell as well, where it's just like 
I love Kathy Bates. Oh, I would I not have nominated her for this, but like, I'm not going to begrudge a Kathy Bates Oscar nomination because I'll begrudge that nomination. <laughs> I just don't think we like we don't have a whole lot of opportunities for her and for her to get Oscar nominated anymore these days. And so let's nominate her for a bad performance in a worse movie. I'm not defending the movie. I'm just saying. I'm not going to be churlish about Kathy Bates is all that I'm saying. Anyway. Okay. Um, uh, all right. Let me find. I'll be over here churling away. <laughs> As is the, your We right. talked about this again, like you mentioned in our um, White Oleander episode. Like the fringe, even though like that is absolutely in hindsight, a locked best act, a best supporting actress lineup of five, the fringes of it, are very interesting. I think that's right. So I'm, I brought up my own personal list just to see how high up Sarandon was. And she is at my current uh, mental, where I am currently mentally, she's a, she's a just missed. So I have Catherine Zeta-Jones, Meryl Streep, Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh, that's, you know, locked in. I have Viola Davis for aforementioned Solaris, because she's great. In that film, mm-hmm. Samantha Morton from Minority Report, which is, I think, a very that was sort of on one of those performances in two thousand two, where people were just like, "What if Samantha Morton in Minority Report?" And I don't think it was ever taken all that seriously, but it was. It def- definitely helped her get that nomination for In America the next year. That's probably true. I think she's really, really fantastic in Minority Report, and I think my also my almost uh, nominate nominees that year. It's a really strong. So it's Tony Collette who I think in either The Hours or About a Boy would have been uh, worthy of a nomination. Susan Sarandon in Moonlight Mile, Patricia Clarkson in Far From Heaven, who got a little uh, Critics Awards attention, I feel like, for that performance, and went a long way towards her getting nominated the next year for the abysmal pieces of April. Um, I think all three of those are really, really strong performances, and on a different day might crack that lineup for me. Mm -hmm. It's a strong year. And again, don't hate Kathy Bates. Don't hate, uh, uh, obviously, Julianne Moore, even though she's not supporting that year. So, but yeah, I think you're right. I think that that five kind of solidified fairly quickly. My five would probably be somewhere in like the list of names you've mentioned or from the Oscar nominees. The only performance that, and I think I forget if we've done our ballots, and I don't have mine open, so I don't know. The one performance I want to throw out there, and I know we've talked about this performance before, and I don't think it would be in my five, but it needs mentioning. Didn't at all get mentioned that year, but we have to talk about Andrea Martin in my Big Fat Greek Wedding. Okay, that's a, that's an inspired uh, uh, thing, and I think... I mean, I mean, I mean, she's, she's Andrea Martin, she's a legend, Regardless, there's not much of her. But then when she has the twin monologue... It's a great it monologue. Talk about things you wanted perfect, to have seen perfect. in a clip in an award show of just, like, Andrea Martin for My Big Factory Wedding. And it's just her talking about how uh, she had the bibopsy and and inside was teeth and a spinal column. It's so... It's so funny. The outrage at he doesn't eat any meat. What do you mean okay. he don't eat lamb. no meat? So that's okay. I'll make lamb. I'll make lamb. She's great. Perfect. You're right. Perfect. I think I, more and more my appreciation, I think that was a movie, it was such a contentious movie at the time, I feel like, because people mm-hmm. thought that it was this dumb thing that people were going to see because they were dumb, and the success of it continued to baffle people, and 
Nia Vardalos is a very sort of particular character in her real life. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like she's somebody who always feels like she's hustling you a little bit. And I think there's a natural uh, reaction to being like, wait a second. Like, maybe I'm, maybe I'm, I should be on my guard a little bit more. Cause she always feels like she's about to like upsell you into like the next level of, you know, vacation. It's a theater kid trait that we don't talk about enough. I think it's probably true. Um, and I'm sure it helped her, you know, sell Rita and Tom on, uh, on throwing some money behind my big fat Greek wedding. Um, but yeah, I think Andrea Martin in that movie is, is a very, very interesting. I need to watch both of those movies like tomorrow. Yeah. No, I think that's probably true. All right. 2002 is such a great year for movies though. Holy shit. I'm looking at this now. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at my little list and like, obviously not even stuff that like would necessarily play into this category, but just like, that's the year of panic room. That's the year of uh, insomnia. That's the year of Itu Mama Tambien and uh, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind and Kissing Jessica Stein and Frailty and, you know, About a Boy. And it's so good. It's such a good year. No wonder I got radicalized evermore by the by the Oscars <laughs> by that the year. Hours. The Hours is the pinnacle, the peak. Yeah. The, um, yeah. What a, what a great movie too. The Hours must be to be the best movie of that year. Man, I'm really onto something. Okay. Um... <laughs> You don't love Dustin Hoffman in this movie. We've we're we're getting on in minutes in here, but like I think kind of briefly. I think he's fine. I just think he's miscast. Like you can imagine, uh, and I think <laughs> what makes me say that is I think he's miscast and not on Susan Sarandon's level in this movie. And I want someone who is going to I you know I feel uh kind of uh volley back what she's serving. You know, and I I feel like they are not in sync. I like I I'm I'm not on that same page. I I like their interplay in this movie. I like the fact that she is sort of aggressively trying to shake him out of his avoidance of his grief in that way. I love every time like the phone rings and she sort of like yells at him not to answer for it, not to answer it. And I do feel like you see the uh you see the long years. I think at one point she mentions that they've been together for 30 years or something like that. And I think you see it on both of their ends. I think you see it in the way that he sort of patiently declines to engage her in an argument that at many times it seems like she wants, because I think that's how she's dealing with her grief is she wants to sort of yell her way through it. And he very much does not. And I think I, I don't know. I feel like I think Dustin Hoffman is a person who we often find it difficult to love for very good reasons. Um, well, he doesn't really play, these, but he makes like, it hard for me. Because... Likable, grounded people. But and... I think about like Meyerowitz stories and how much I just fucking adored his performance in Meyerowitz stories. And... Yeah, but, but he's playing an asshole. And right. He's playing, you know, someone who's in the clouds all the time. And I feel like. I mean, just thinking, like, right in the 2002 box, the sporting actor winner, I wonder what, like, a Chris Cooper Mm. would have been, like, opposite Susan Sarandon in this movie. And, like, Chris Cooper is no stranger to, like, making us weep. Like, I I don't think any of us predicted uh, Chris Cooper being the person to give us the biggest tears from little women. But, like, he is that type of actor. And, like, I want that type of actor. And Dustin Hoffman just isn't. That's fair. 
Uh, he was, after all, though, nominated for a AARP Movies for Grownups Awards. Uh, the most important precursor. He was a Best Actor nominee that year. I think they might have just done all performances in actor and actress rather than dealing with lead or supporting because he is nominated in Best Actor that year. He loses to Jack Nicholson for About Schmidt, who almost won the Oscar that year. Came, I think, very... I, it, I w- won the Best Movies for Grown-Up Award, which is wild to me. About Schmidt did? Yes. Fantastic. Um, I would love to see... We talk about wanting to see Oscar vote totals all the time. I'd love to see who finished second in 2002, whether it was Nicholson or... Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis for Gangs of New York. I bet it was... I I mean, I would bet it was Nicholson. And I feel like I think it might have been Daniel Day-Lewis, but that's why I would like to see. Um, also nominated at AARP for Best Actor, Michael Caine for The Quiet American. We always wonder who saw The Quiet American. I was going to say, who saw The Quiet American? All the people who voted for the AARP Awards that year. And then Samuel L. Jackson for Changing Lanes, the... Uh, a uh, movie that came out in like March or April. The of Roger Michel directed uh, Changing Lanes, him and uh, Ben Affleck, which I've never seen. But the fact that it's a Roger Michel movie and the fact that it has Tony Collette in it makes me feel like I should at some point see it. I almost want it to like show up on cable so I don't have to make the active choice to see it, but I can watch it passively. <laughs> That's all I ask. Susan Sarandon is nominated for Best Actress for two supporting performances for Moonlight Mile and Igby Goes Down. Uh, also nominated Judy Dench in The Importance of Being Earnest. That was the one I'm also pretty a sure. performance. Right. I was going to say that's the one where Reese Witherspoon is the lead of that one that I remember being pretty well reviewed and I hadn't seen it. And I should go back and I should watch that at some point because I love it's Reese. Silly. Um, Sigourney Weaver for The Guys, which we talk about post 9 11. A movie movies. which one person saw. That was a movie that dealt very specifically with 9 11, where it was about uh, a fire captain in the aftermath of losing a bunch of his men uh, at the World Trade Center. And she plays somebody who deals she with plays that fire the inter- She's interviewing him. Mm. It was originally an off Broadway show oh, that opened God. like three months or something i was gonna say it would have to if it was based on jesus it it was what yeah yeah um she was one who was very much on the periphery of the awards conversation that year but this is probably the most that that performance got in terms of recognition they all lost really didn't get much of a release yeah they all lost to meryl streep who was giving a lead slash supporting sort of riding that you know middle line of uh she's you know in many ways, adaptation is as much about her as it is about the Nicolas Cage twin performances. Uh, she's incredibly One good. One of her best performances. Incredibly good in that movie. Wins a very, very well-deserved AARP award. And then the third award that Moonlight Mile was nominated for, which I think you might disagree, with, as we just talked about how you don't love the Hoffman performances, but it was nominated for Best Grown-Up Love Story for the Sarandon and Hoffman performances, which I think is justified uh nominated up against divine secrets of the yaya sisterhood ellen burston and james garner feel confident in saying that's probably the only nom award that uh, divine secrets of the yaya sisterhood was up for considering people <laughs> loathed that movie um jill clayberg and jeffrey tambor for a movie called never again jeffrey tambor yeah for a movie we called, love Jill, though. We love May Jill Clayberg. What rest. a fucking legend. Uh, never heard about that movie, but that movie also stars 
Caroline Aaron, Bill Duke, Sandy Duncan, and Michael McKeon. Like, that's a cast right there. Like, that's a real Bill interesting fucking cast. Duke. Every time Bill Duke shows up <laughs> in the new Soderbergh movie on HBO <laughs> I Max, knew you were gonna mention I, that. like, screamed at my TV, Bill Duke! <laughs> He's He's the great. Coolest. He's great. They all lost to a television movie that year. Uh, Vanessa Redgrave <laughs> and Albert Finney were nominated for playing Winston and Clementine Churchill in The Gathering Storm. That was an HBO movie, my friends. Like, do better, AARP. I don't have to yell at them very often, but I do in this case. What would Listen, have been? You know what should have won Best Grown Up Love Story? What? Do you, can can you just fat? Can you like rack your brain for what it should have been? Um, Obviously, grown it up should have been Meryl Streep and Allison Janney. I mean, Meryl. I was going to say Nicole Kidman and and uh, Stephen Delane, but uh, also that Meryl Streep sure. and Allison Janney. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in the hours that would count as best grown up love story if uh, if they had the guts to include it. Yeah. All right. So that was, I think, the extent of the Moonlight Mile Awards journey. Susan got nominated for a Las Vegas Film Critics Society Award. No, she won Las Vegas Film Critics Society Award for Best Supporting Actress for this and Igby. Silberling got a couple screenplay nominations from regional critics, but that was about it. All right. Any sort of closing thoughts on this before we move on to the IMDb game? I'm going to peruse my notes. Um... I mean, we didn't really get into... Oh, let's talk about the needle drops. We do have to talk about yeah, the Yeah, that's drops. exactly okay. what I was going to say. You, it's like... You hate it. Like I said, it is... This movie cut out the Van Morrison needle drops, and it is 30 minutes shorter. It It's literally named after a Rolling Stones song. It, is. it was originally supposed to be named after a Beatles song that had uh, even less God. to do with the plot of it. It was going to be called... Um, Shit, I can't remember. But it was a Beatles song that was too expensive. Wasn't it? It wasn't. It, it's um. Oh God, it's right there. It's not Eleanor Rigby. It's obviously. not. No, it's not. There's a different movie named. After it's that. not anything quite um, so well known as that. Um, yeah, but Babies I think in it's Black. From the Eleanor Rigby. Album. It was supposed to be Babies in Black. Yes, which would have been an even worse title. Yeah, Moonlight Mile doesn't really describe a whole lot about this movie, but like Babies in Black describes even less somehow. Um. So, yes, this movie is very, very much a particular strain of classic rock. Uh, it feels almost almost famous-ish in its, uh, in its curation, where it feels like it's very much curated by, like, uh, your dad's coolest friend. I don't know. Like, yes. um, but as I said, I am... It was also the music supervision for this was... Um, Shit, now I'm not Jack Cassidy and Yorma Kakonin, who were in uh, what was the band? It was obviously uh, also formerly of uh, Jefferson Airplane, but um, they were in another band, which probably helped them secure some of these songs. Because I'm like, this movie's budget is eighty percent music. It's rights. a lot. It's, <laughs> there's a lot of Elton John. Uh, uh, Razorface is uh, the Elton John movie that is uh, most uh, prominently in this. Obviously, you mentioned uh, Moonlight Mile. Uh, Van Morrison's Sweet Thing is at the end of this movie. As I said, I have a soft spot for uh, many Van Morrison songs. That one especially, it really puts me in a mood. There's a lot of Bob Dylan blood on the tracks. Right. There is uh, uh, 
Sly and the Family Stone is used to sort of comedic effect at the beginning when they get in the car to go to the cemetery and they turn on the car and it's blasting I Want to Take You Higher, which is uh, uh, very funny. Also, um, I, hear, I Hear You Knocking, the uh, which I always think of as an icon- iconic uh, Raven lip sync for your life song from season two. Rest in peace, uh, Monique. Summers Madison. Yes. Uh yeah, that's that's who she beat in that lip sync. It was right. Mystique yeah. Summers Madison apologies. Yes. Um yeah, Raven killed that one though. I thought she was very good. Anyway, yeah, I did not also uh funny use of I thought Rock and Roll Part 2. The uh the by the uh, disgraced uh, Gary Glitter, but uh when uh, Ellen Pompeo was sort of uh shimmying to that behind the bar. Anyway, I just don't think you get to use that song anymore. Like it is just well, too you could then All probably. of sports has made that. Well, too, you can't use that in a movie. I yeah, uh, that's fair. That's fair. Anyway, this movie very much made me think of sitting uh, at the bar in my dad's garage, and uh, it's a lot of you know my dad. Your dad has a bar in the garage. My dad and I built a bar in our garage in preparation. Where is my invite? What is wrong with you? When you come to Buffalo, I want to hang out at your dad's bar. When we when in the garage. When you come to Buffalo, we'll definitely do that. Yeah, my dad and I, uh, it's not much of a, it's not like this like big elaborate thing, but it's like, it's a bar. We, we, yeah, but it sounds cool. We built it in preparation for my high school graduation party. My, my grandfather, uh, sort of had this iconic, like that one is like full L shaped sort of bar in his garage. And my grandparents' garage was like the place. The place where all the sort of, especially in the summer, all the gatherings were. They had the bar, the fridge behind the bar. Um, you know, the wonderful little like bar stools and then some like tables elsewhere in the in the garage. All the walls were sort of festooned with photographs and like family kind of uh, tchotchkes and memorabilia, which is another thing that my dad's done in, in his garage is, you know, everything. There's a lot of sort of, you know, uh, ball caps and pennants and photos and, and little things in the in my dad's uh, garage. So, yeah, it always this soundtrack very, very much felt like, oh, this is a hanging out in my dad's garage kind of a soundtrack. So obviously it put me in a very, very good. Well, now I am space. an asshole. Why? <laughs> no, <laughs> because I am shitting on it. You are not you required. Nice no, it. absolutely not. No, I understand. It is a. It is a very needle droppy kind of a movie, and I criticize those things as often as anybody else. But uh, for this, for me, it uh, it definitely worked. Anyway, what other little last second thoughts? Uh, oh, I love how uh, both Sarandon and Dustin Hoffman's characters refer to Diana as the girl. That to me feels very. That's maybe another sort of like screenwriting trick, but for me, it really helped it feel very lived in, very much just like that was sort of a, a quirk in their family that they call her the girl. Um, and I think whenever, especially Sarandon, sort of gets to talking about her, it feels very intimate and emotional when they uh, get to those scenes. Um, yeah, I also really love that scene. I think the two Jake Gyllenhaal. Susan Sarandon scenes are the highlights of this movie. The one where yeah. they're in the living room and then the other one where she's sort of drunk and in his bedroom after she found out that he had been on this date and also sort of then surmised that he and Diana had uh, broken up before she died. She is really wonderful in that. She's really wonderful. She's the, definitely, I think, I'm glad we at least both agree on her as the highlight of this movie because I do love her. 
I also love the scene where she screams at Dustin Hoffman that um, he's building a tomb in the middle. <laughs> Fuck off! Build <laughs> a tomb in the middle of your house. Oh, perfect. Glad we got one reference to the lovely bones in before we uh, hit the IMDb game. Chris, do you want to explain to our listeners what the IMDb game is? Uh, of course, every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they're most known for. If any of those titles are television, voiceover performances, or non-acting credits, we'll mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles released years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints and Van Morrison tracks. <laughs> exactly. Uh, would you like to give or guess first? Uh, how about you make that call? All right. Why don't it on you? Well, I'm going to give first, but then I'm going to shoot it back to you to make a choice. Would you like the easy one or the hard one? No, 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 I'm taking the, I, I normally want to take the hard route, but I have earned some points after you giving me both Swoozy Kurtz and Seal Award in a single episode. All right. I'll give you the easy one. All right. So. We talked about uh, Brad Silberling's. We didn't really talk a a ton about his post-Moonlight Mile films. He follows that up two years later with a series of unfortunate events, which doesn't do as well, I think, as people had wanted it to. But You know why he partly got that job? Why? Which we didn't talk about. He almost got the Harry Potter gig instead of Chris Columbus. Oh, I don't think I knew that. Yeah. That's really interesting post city of angels because mm. that was a warner brothers movie i see he, uh, harry potter is obviously set up at warner brothers he almost directed the first harry potter yeah i think they wanted a series of unfortunate events to be a franchise and it did not succeed enough although it did get an oscar for makeup so i always be me being an oscar nerd i'm just like what a series of unfortunate events was definitely a success it won an oscar and people are just like no people they wanted that to be (laughs) a series but then um he in 2009 directed the will ferrell land of the lost that was absolutely despised and a huge bomb and that sort of put him in director jail he's only made one movie since then a movie uh in 2017 called no ordinary or an ordinary man with uh which i had never heard of nor had i uh, but anyway, the movie he made in between A Series of Unfortunate Events and Land of the Lost is a small little movie called Ten Items or Less uh, that I had never heard of either. It's a short little 82-minute... Is that the Jesse Eisenberg movie? No. there. I think Jesse Eisenberg had a movie called 30 Minutes or Less, right? Because isn't he playing like sure, a delivery the guy? or less cinematic universe. Right, the or less cinematic universe. This movie uh, starred uh, Paz Vega and Jonah Hill and uh, some other people, but it's Star, the person who I'm going to quiz you on for IMDb game purposes, is Mr. Morgan Freeman. Aha. Okay. Morgan Freeman. Shawshank. Uh, No. Strike one. Oh, fuck. Constantly the number one movie on IMDb is not on his known for. Isn't that, isn't that the That's IMDb wild. game? Uh, what you call it, algorithm at work? Yeah. Uh, okay, I'm just going to say his Oscar win, uh, Million Dollar Baby. Correct. Million Dollar Baby. And, and these movies show up for everyone else. I don't know why it wouldn't show up for him. 
because he is rad in these movies. Uh, I'm going to say The Dark Knight. Oh, no. But you were like, that is a, that's sound reasoning for you there. I think he's maybe a little I mean, bit I too far down. I guess he's in down. bigger movies than a lot of those people, but. He's very, very far crazy. down that uh, cast list, but yes. Okay, so that's two strikes. You will get the years. Your years are 1989, 1995, and 2009. 89 is Driving Miss Daisy. Correct. Gross. Correct. 95 has to be 7. 95 is 7. Awesome. Yes. He's great in 7. He's like phenomenally his most great. underrated performance and I don't even think that people don't say that he's good in that movie. It's just he's that good. I feel like that was one of the ones where like Ebert at their like if we picked the Oscars special, I think he like went to bat for Freeman in 7 if I'm not mistaken. Maybe I am. But um I feel like there was a there was a string of what about Morgan Freeman for seven that year that like even though it was never going to happen with Oscar voters it should have right. Brad Pitt um, also rules in that movie though. That's the thing is the two of them together are like really really fantastic. Put them in another damn movie together. Yeah. Um. Oh, what was my other year? Oh nine. Oh nine. Okay. So that's too late for Bruce Almighty, which like I had in my back pocket that I'm like he mm. is definitely known for being God. Yes. Is that red? It's not. Is that the same year as Thank red? God. You might be you might be right on the year, but it's not uh red is 20 It's around that time. Red is the year after. Okay. Let's see 09. Oh, you're going to shit. Uh, oh, what? You're going to be you're going to flip out when you realize what it is. Is it that other bad action movie that he's in, Wanted, no. Oscar nominee, Wanted. Wanted was 08, I'm pretty sure. Wanted, a movie where Her. Angelina Jolie trains James McAvoy to throw cars at other cars. The Bucket List. No, that was 07? Oh my god, I can't get any fucking years right. I, I like I'm play I'm placing myself in the right moment in time though. Right. I picked the easy one and I'm having embarrassing struggles. But like Morgan Freeman is not easy because Morgan Freeman is in a lot of movies, popular movies, and he's like the star. This is definitely the hardest one of the four, but it is almost for me, it's easy for its hardness, if that makes sense. Like to me, this movie sticks out as like don't forget this one. It's always fucking this one. So it's not, it's a movie that people don't remember? Well, they... Oh my god, oh my god. This is not okay. We need to do something to prevent this. This is Invictus, isn't it? Uh, you are the captain of your soul for uh, forgetting I, that one, right? You guys, we can't. No, no. Invictus. Invictus stay. is always the movie when I try and think of like who were the best actor nominees in 09, and I always get four, and then finally I'm just like, remember, the hardest one to get is Invictus because it doesn't exist. So that now I weirdly like remember it more because I'm always just Even like my brain is overcorrecting. Who love Clint Eastwood movies who like I constantly see raving about these bad Clint Eastwood movies like their masterpieces yeah those people don't even remember Invictus agreed nobody does and yet it was two-time Oscar nominee for acting for both Freeman and uh yeah did it get any other nominations I think it might have been just those two just those two which that's always so dubious to me that a movie gets no other nominations but acting like because sometimes that's warranted but usually when that happens it's just that the Oscars are going on actor reputation 
Right. Weird. All right. Oh my god. Wasn't Matt Damon's Oscar clip him just like staring out a window? <laughs> it's very possible. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. All right. All right. I'm not happy about Morgan Freeman's known for guys. We need to do better by him. Even put Last Vegas in there, something. <laughs> um anyway, yes. for you, Joe, I think I also went the easy route though. Maybe I could be wrong. Uh, I went for also another uh, Brad Silberling star, also an O2 acting nominee who I have said in the past, and I will stand by it, I would have voted for him uh, currently as of this episode airing. Pig is in oh my God. theaters. <laughs> he is incredible in it. It is his best performance in a very long time. The movie I am somewhat... Uh, Dish on, but he is amazing when we're seeing the movie for. We're obviously talking about Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage. All right. I mean, yes, easy in that, like, I can think of a lot of Nicolas Cage performances. I famously won a trivia tiebreak around videology by uh, in a name as many Nicolas Cage performances as you can face off with the other team. My greatest uh, moment at videology. Are you saying you took your face off? I took my face off. All right. Nicolas Cage. All right. See, this is the thing, though, is there's a ton of performances, but like which ones float to the top is the question. All right. I'm going to... Oh, God. It's like, where do you even begin? All right. I'm going to say The Rock. The Rock. Okay. I've never seen The Rock. The Rock's not bad. There's some stuff in The Rock that I really hate. There's an unfortunate, uh, although unsurprising, if you think of Michael Bay, uh, strain of homophobia in that film that I hate. I mean, Michael Bay is the reason I have not seen The Rock. Yeah. Um, Connery, though, is very fun. And I love, you know, Connery getting to ham it up. I was watching recently um, the trailer for The Hunt for Red October because that movie had been it was on TV, but it was like at one in the morning. And I'm like, either I can commit myself to staying up till three in the morning to watch The Hunt for Red October or I can go to bed right now. And I chose bed. But like the next day, I was just like the right choice. I did. But I wanted I watched The Hunt for Red October the next day. And the fact that he's just like. His hybrid Scottish-Russian accent in that movie, a lot of the times, is just fully Scottish and just, like, not even pretending to be Russian. It's very funny. Anyway. We talked about this during our Finding Forrester episode, but, like, the stretch in the 90s that, like, Sean Connery was a major movie star. Yeah. I know. That's, like, we don't talk enough about that, but also it rules. (laughs) Yes. Oh, the like the entrapment era, the there yeah, he was I am a first night apologist. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Um all right, back to Nicolas Cage though. I'm going to guess National Treasure. No. Damn. We've kind of forgotten. I mean, like weirdos like us have not forgotten about those movies because we have fun with them, but like the culture has kind of forgotten about those movies that, and how much money it made. But they were yeah, I was going to say they were incredibly successful movies, especially that first one. All right. I'm resisting picking Leaving Las Vegas because I think for somebody with as many credits and successful movies as his as he has, I'm not sure a relatively little seen movie is definitely going to show up on his but like putting a pin in it i'm going to guess moonstruck no no moonstruck okay 
Moonstruck, uh, for whatever reason, we don't talk about uh, Nicolas Cage in that movie, but he is. I feel like we do more now than we used to. I think the reason, well, because Moonstruck has become like the Moonstruck Assange has has recognized Nicolas Cage pretty well. Yes, I feel like. Yes. All right. All right. So your three years are 1995, 1997, and 2000. So every time I guess wrong for this, every time I think I know the balance of are there are they going to include the Oscar winner or not? Oscar nominations are very important in this game. They are, but sometimes they're not. And uh, all right. So leaving Las Vegas is the 95. Yes. 97, is that what you said? 97 and 2007. All right. 97, Nicolas Cage. So the year before City of Angels, the year after The Rock, Con Air. No. Really? Okay. Face Off. Face Off. <laughs> I was like, come I on. was surprised you made the Face Off joke. I basically with it. gave it to you. I was going to say, but I, the fact that you made that joke made me less likely to guess it because I was like, Chris isn't going to just give me the answer um, for comedy. Face sake. off. I remember like having like one of the like three college parties I went to face off was on in the background and like a bunch of like the dudes, like one of the few times in my life I've ever had like a male camaraderie. We just all like kind of stopped what we were doing and watched face off. Amazing. And I like talked about it being like one of the movies my dad took me to see like in that era. And then a bunch of people also realized they saw that movie in a theater with their dad when they were too young. Oh my and God. We all had a nice moment together. That was a movie that was on TV recently and I watched and I remembered that the end of that movie, the score at the end of that movie, which feels very kind of like cheesy triumphant and sort of out of place with what this movie is. I was like, where do I know this piece of music from? And what it was, was from one of those HBO year ender montages that they would do. (laughs) And it was specifically, I remember when they were like coming up in 2003 and it was like, it was because I think it was one of those like best of 2002 or best of 2003 or whatever. And it's just, like coming up this year. And I remember the big flourish in the face off score is like very, very prominent in this video. And once again, I call upon somebody with access to the HBO promotional vaults to release all of those year end supercuts onto YouTube. What are they doing for you locked in a vault? Absolutely nothing. Like, you know, whose rules and face off Joan Allen. Joan Allen. Joan Allen rules. Yeah, she does. Joan Allen rules. Um, I, I, I was like, it's either going to be Joan Allen or Dominique Swain, and he's probably not going to say Dominique it's Swain. It's Margaret Chow. <laughs> she is in that, isn't she? All right, one more. 2007? Dominique Swain, what a time. 2007. What was it's it? a movie that I always cite for a very specific reason. Oh, God. 07, Nick Cage. A movie that I cite in my relationship to, uh, we'll say, an actress. <laughs> God, it's so rare for you to talk about actresses. Okay. Um, fuck. Action. Yes, an action movie. Not Wicker Man. Wicker Man was 06. Not the bees. Not the bees. Um, and not the weird... Uh, Port of Call, New Orleans that he did. That was, I think, a couple years after that. He actually has a lot of movies in 07. And it's not Eraser Baby Eraser, because that's not him. He's not in Eraser. No, I know, but I'm thinking of movies that you reference a lot in relation to a certain actress. Um, 
I loved you in Eraser. Um, Eraser, baby, Eraser. Rest in peace, Chi-Chi Devane. I know. God, she was so fantastic. All right. Um, Action movie. Is it like notoriously bad? Is that one? Oh, God, it's next, isn't it? It is next. Why do I always cite next? Because of Julianne Moore. Why is Julianne Moore in that movie? It's the, it's the last movie that I decided I have to see every Julianne Moore movie. <laughs> I was like, I can't do this. Of I cannot do this All of the Nicolas Cage movies, it's unconscionable that next is one of his known for. The other 2007 movies that he is credited with, he has a cameo in Grindhouse. <laughs> Understandable well, that it's not there. Yeah. But the other ones are Ghost Rider and National Treasure 2. And Next is the one that shows up from that year. Of all, There are so many Nicolas Cage movies that deserve placement over Next. It's insane. Knowing is much more uh, is much better than, than Next and should be on his list instead. Um, obviously, either one of the first two National Treasures. Um, God, so many. Matchstick Men should be there. Adaptation should be there. Moonstruck should be there. All of the ones that I guessed do a Nicolas Cage soon. Have we done a Nicolas Cage? I mean, that's his career doesn't offer a whole ton of options because he's either nominated or he's in a movie that, like, is not an option. You know what I mean? It's just like it does not have those ambitions. He has a few. Matchstick Man, I guess, is one that we could do. I mean, uh, not that we want to do World Trade Center, but World we Trade could. Center is one. Also, Matchstick like, Man is one. to do another Silver Link so quickly, but, like, City of Angels is, like, within our rubric. We don't want the listeners to see us because we don't think that they would understand. <laughs> I would spend that entire movie talking about that soundtrack, and rightfully so. And also uh, Andre Brower's line readings, which are like all very, very dramatic in very, very fantastic ways. Also, oh wait, we did do "Bringing Out the Dead." We've done "Bringing Out the Dead." Yes, we did. That was a good episode. All right, I think we've I think we've closed the book. We've we've uh, we've completed running the Moonlight Mile at long last. Yes. So uh, good we job. are crossing the finish line we are of the Moonlight Mile. Crossing the finish line. Thank you for sticking with us, listeners. That is our episode. If you would like more of this head Oscar buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Christopher, first of all, happy recent birthday. I want to say on the podcast as of this recording. Yes. I hope all much. of our listeners uh, wish you a very happy birthday. Once they realize where can they find you and your stuff? You can find me on Twitter and letterbox at crispy file. That is F E I L. I am also on Twitter and letterboxed as the same name. It's uh, at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. Obviously, you don't need the at for letterboxed, but you guys are intelligent. You guys know that. Uh, we would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork, Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, the abysmal Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts. Remember, we only uh, say bad things about Apple Podcasts because their redesign sucks, and we just want them to get better so that we can not say bad things about them again. Do better, Apple Podcasts. Please. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with the aforementioned Apple Podcasts and visibility thereon. So put on some Elton John music to chill out and feel your feelings and write something nice about us, won't you? That is all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more Little Buzz. And I shall watch the ferry boats and they'll get high On a blue ocean against tomorrow's sky. 
Sweet thing.